for his view on how to how to experience consciousness and uh, what consciousness is, please welcome Dr. Alexander Shulgin. Don't tell him I used his name, Alexander. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here and a great honor to be here. Uh, I'm not a great lover of micro, was it micro point? Uh, magic PowerPoint, PowerPoint. Had I known that you were gonna have a PowerPoint availability here, I probably would not have used it anyway, because every time I've tried using it, about 30% of the time at least, it fails, it falls apart somehow, it never quite gets to where I want to go. So I, I, rather than put a lot of chemical structures, which would be boring to about 80% of the audience and fascinating to the other 20%, I suspect, uh, I'll just use my hands and wave my hands as is appropriate. Uh, I mean, molecules obviously are, you know, rings and chains and nitrogens, and there's no problem about that at all. Um, my interest in the area, actually, this is, this is a, a, a nice opportunity. I spent a couple of years of my life upriver, uh, some, oh, 60 or so years ago, more than that, at Harvard, where I uh, had the unfortunate pleasure of having a national scholarship, which got me in there free. And uh, I found that everyone else had parents who had enough money to get them in there, having paid their way. And I could find very little rapport with the masses of freshmen that were around me. So I found it much more pleasurable to go in the Navy and spend three years in the Atlantic in the anti-submarine patrol, which actually gave me a very nice beginning on chemistry in that one of the um, books I had with me was a book by Paul Carter, a Swiss chemist, written about 1938 or 1940. And it was a complete over, over uh, statement, complete statement of the uh, subtleties and the complexities of organic chemistry. And when you're spending three years uh, in the Atlantic waiting for submarines, you have a lot of time spare. And I not only read the book, but substantially understood it. And uh, it was a very, very great pleasure to get out of the Navy and back into the university at Berkeley, where I took organic chemistry as my major. And uh, the greatest compliment I had was from a, a fellow by the name of Kason, uh, who was a lecturer there, at, uh, or professor at chemistry. And uh, he said, by the way, he met him in the hall during, the, I guess, the second year of organic chemistry. Um, we're having a, a midterm this coming Tuesday, and you can take it if you want to, which I thought was quite a compliment, because I was, uh, the average on the first midterm was something like 62 points out of 100, and I had 100%. And he... <laughs> didn't know exactly why. I mean, I, I, could, I could answer the questions without any problem because they're all in Paul Carr's book and I had memorized the book. Ah, well, that's, I think, honest, but <laughs> not very much. Anyway, uh, that, uh, after that, I got into um, my uh, AB in chemistry at Berkeley, a PhD in biochemistry at Berkeley, got involved in a little laboratory. There are five of us called BioRad Laboratory that's now a multi-million dollar operation. Had I stayed with them, I would have been a very, very rich millionaire with ulcers at this point. And I'm very glad I just I split the scene when there's still only five of us present. Did a little radioactive synthesis in their, in their name. Uh, did some postdoctorate work at Berkeley. Uh, went to Dow Chemical Company, the Dow Chemical Company out with a branch of it there in Pittsburgh in, near, near, the, near the Bay Area in, in California. And um, it's there that I really got initiated into what turned out to be a very important change in my life. I had my first experience with uh, mescaline. 
about 1960, that's a, 1950, 1960, about 45 years ago. Uh, 400 milligrams of the, of the sulfate and had a good babysitter. And I had explored a great deal around various psychoactive drugs. This was supposed to be an erotic thing. That is supposed to be an amnesia thing. Each of these has their own name. I had heard about mescaline, had never tried it. And that one day, that eight or 10 hour experience, really changed uh, my life for the next uh, half century. I was totally fascinated with a drug that could get in there, allow you to see things you would not normally see, and yet you knew to be valid. I have a reasonably limited uh, knowledge of colors. Suddenly I saw colors that I had never really appreciated before. I could look at a flower and observe the beauty of a flower, could not open the flower, could not touch it, but I observed the beauty of a flower. I had memories from childhood that I knew were valid, but I had not thought of them for years. It was a very, very delightful uh, experience, but mainly what uh, uh, impressed me most thoroughly is that uh, that experience was clearly not due, the contents of that experience were not in that 400 milligrams of the drug. The drug, what it did, it catalyzed my mind. It got my mind back into that particular area. So I looked upon these materials as being catalytic, not productive. They do not do what occurs. They allow you to express what is in you that you had not had the ability to get to and express uh, yourself without, without the help of a, of a material. So this really caught my fancy and I said, if, if this little 400 milligrams of something could be a, a, an effective catalyst to, relieve, to re reveal back to me what I had done, what I had seen, and uh, such, there is a great potential here for, uh, for medical use. And that caught me with my little knowledge of chemistry and my intense curiosity as what was going on upstairs in my head as it was revealed by this masculine experience, I really went into uh, a true new direction of chemistry. And here is where I guess I kind of have to wave hands. Um, mescaline is a ring with three methoxy groups out here. Don't worry what a methoxy group is. Someone near you will probably explain it later. A carbon, carbon, and a nitrogen, a very simple molecule. Uh, and I said, you know, if this molecule can be this effective, of what other kind of effects could be gotten by similar materials? So the first thing I did was stick a methyl group on down here. So now I now have an amphetamine compound and took it very cautiously. We're talking a lot today already about experiments with, with mice and with rats and with um, various animals. In my own case, I, the only animal I used was, was the human animal. I presume this is now a little awkward because of the various uh, national and federal regulations have come in, but uh, I find that still the human, human animal is the only one that is really effective in evaluating and comparing these various psychedelic materials, and, I, and, and the work I do is still involved in that direction. Um, here's a material that is identical with mescaline, I call it trimethoxyamphetamine, DMA, and, uh, and my golly, it was about twice as potent and totally different in its action. With the mescaline, I had this, this love and sensitivity to a flower that was on my coffee table where I was living. And under the TMA experience, uh, I got very curious about it and tore it apart to see what was inside. Complete change of, of attitude toward, toward something of, of precious beauty. One was uh, an absolute cherishing, uh, uh, sort of a um, reverence, and the other was one of dissective, uh, dissecting curiosity. 
and the activity was twice, so I went ahead and did that. I put an ethyl, propyl, butyl, amyl, put all kinds of different groups on that position. Uh, that's one of the beautiful things about having a little bit of fun with the art of chemistry is you can put things on and know where they're going and have ways of determining that your chemistry is going correctly. But the real charming thing, and the really, uh, uh, to me, exciting thing, was the fact each thing you came up with uh, was a new material. It had never been made before. So you're looking at a, at a white crystalline solid in a, in a little beaker there, uh, and you've never seen it before. No one in the world has seen this before. As far as you know, no one in the universe has seen this before. It's a new, new thing you just made. And it's never seen you before, so you, in essence, have no, no, no dialogue at all. How much do you start with? How much material do you use as a first experiment on a new chemical that's never been tried before by anyone? Well, obviously, an amount that's small enough that will not have any effect. But how small an amount is that? There's a very interesting additional nuance in this, in this relationship that I developed over a period of time. That You go with great caution, decide what is an amount that would have no effect, and take one thousandth of that amount. It doesn't take much, it takes time. But it doesn't take much more chemicals because you use a thousand up to where you were, you'd use another milligram perhaps. And so each of these materials had to be uh, learned as an individual new meeting. And one when of the, the outgrowths that I discovered is that the beauty of your final results of finding out what the, what the effects are, uh, you really can't be wrong. Because you'll say, I found that this material caused a visual enhancement of that and a recall of memories of this and this and yonder. Anyone else who tries it who finds the same results will say he is right. Anyone who tries it and doesn't get the results is, what did I do wrong? So in essence, you come up with, with a winner uh, very nicely. Anyway, what I did, put these on there. The methyl group was twice as active. I put a propyl with no activity at all, uh, uh, the alpha, the, uh, alpha ethyl mescaline. And by that time, I had made materials up through the oh, nine or 10 carbon chains, so I didn't bother trying them. I went back, put stuff on the nitrogen, out here, the nitrogen atom, uh, no, it lost activity entirely. A couple of methyl groups out there, you can go almost a gram and not get any effects. Uh, then you have the ring system. Now here, here you got really exciting. You have these three methoxy groups sticking out in the ring. If you can imagine a hexagon being held by a two carbon chain, you have the hexagon out here. You have one, two, three, four, you have five positions. Three of them are occupied with methoxies. So here's your, your, your quiz of the day. How many ways can you put three methoxy groups on this six-membered ring? They're different compounds. And the answer is six. You can have three, four, five, two, four, five, two, three, four, two, three, five, two, three, six, two, four, six. I can, if I had a side slide, this would be obvious. Anyway, so I, I synthesized the other five compounds. And uh, by golly, the two, four, five was ten times as active. Uh, two, four, six was also very active and very interesting. The other three were absolute duds, nothing, nothing at all. So here, suddenly I now know that you can get much more potency and complexity, more, more stimulation, more eye dilation, uh, but also psychedelic effects with, say, 245. So now you have a new material, TMA, call, I call it TMA2. Uh, you have three methoxy groups out here in those positions. Try each of them into an ethoxy. Gives you three more compounds, and only the four position was, was sensitive. So suddenly you have a, a position out there that, that gives you more potency. So I put other groups going out that way and began realizing that the, this is a structure. These are all called phenethylamines, by the way. Uh, this structure is amenable to uh, amplification, complexity increasing if you substitute here but not there. So that's where I go. 
Uh, we're talking earlier some talk about neurotransmitters. Uh, it occurs to me that in that position with the methoxy group, uh, the methoxy group can metabolize off easily. What about putting a group out there that won't metabolize off? Instead of methoxy, put a methyl group out there. So I made the compound 2,5-dimethoxy-4-methylamphetamine. And I said, it's either going to be much more active, because it can't come off and be uh, metabolized easily, and hence I'll have a more active compound, or it will not be active at all, but it will go into the neurotransmitter site that psychedelics go into, and if there's anything to the argument that these are neurologically activating sites and may be activated by people who are uh, with mental illness, you may have a therapy for mental illness. You can't lose. So I made the compound, tried it, and it turned out to be quite a bit more potent. Yet, this is a material called DOM, which that, of course, led to a whole new direction. If you have DOM out there, methyl, what about ethyl, active compound, propyl, active compound, and if it's methyls and the propyls and so forth, active, put a bromine out there, active compound, put an iodine out there, active compound. So the, the thought occurred to me, if you have an alkyl group, that's DOB and DOI, uh, DOM was the one that got off into San Francisco under the name of STP. I don't know if any, if any of you are young enough to know San Francisco in the 60s, but there was a, 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 D, a STP, a DMP, STP, I should say, was very active at that time, and it was turned out that I found out that it was indeed DOM under another name, STP. Uh, they, they said uh, serenity, tranquility, and placidity was the name for it, and no one knew what placidity was, so it became uh, serenity, tranquility, and peace, which was a little bit more understood. Uh, to the police authorities who did not like this idea of this going around, they didn't know what it was. They called it too stupid to puke, which was their counterpart to the, this is the days of the Haight-Ashbury uh, clinic. And it was, at this time, I was up in the hill in the medical school, and that, this was going out there and had no idea what STP was. One of my compounds, I had talked at a, a, media, at a uh, conference back in the East Coast, here in the East Coast, about a week or two earlier, and I had talked about the material and gave it structure. And I suspect it was just synthesized from this seminar I gave. Anyway, the uh, bromo, the <laughs> funny world, uh, the bromo compound, iodo compound, it occurred to me maybe it is because this alkyl group was active and you have what's called a, a lipophilicity or, or hydrophobicness, where something likes something that's fatty. And maybe if I put something on there that was water loving, like a nitro group, it would not be active when it goes into the into the neurotransmitter uh, receptor site. I put the nitro group active. Well, maybe it likes both, it was putting its tail into this receptor site going to the right that's lipophilic and to the left that's hydrophilic. What if I'm putting a group on that is not philic at all, namely fluorine? So I put on, a, I think it was a trifluoroethyloxy analog, so I felt this would probably not be active at all, also active. So just getting it, the tail of the four position that molecule into the receptor site, produced activity. So from that, the obvious steps were to go and make, take off the methyl group, get away from the amphetamine chain. So I took the methyl group off, and that gave uh, 2CB, then 2CI, a host of other materials in the same ilk that was just a, a beautifully rich um, collection of, of compounds, many of them uh, uh, not as potent as the amphetamines, but shorter-lived and much more benign and much more friendly than the corresponding amphetamines. So this is more, then oh, another thing I, I, somewhere along the line occurred to me, if oxygen does a good job, put a sulfur on there, 
and you get them now the 2CT family, 2CT2 up to about 2CT25 or so, of which about half of them are active. So this is, the, this is kind of the hand-waving world of synthetic chemistry. I could go on for another 10, 15 minutes and get into tryptamines and go through the same complexities, but you have this as the active position, that is not as active, this is less active. Alkyl groups on tryptamines are much enhancing in, in nature and complexity of action. Alkyl groups, with the exception of MDMA and a couple of others, on the phenethylamines destroys the activity of the phenethylamines. So there are differences between these two families of compounds, but those differences are not um, negative, they are just informative. Anyway, that's kind of the picture of where I've been going for a while. I don't want to take too long here. Um, what uh, is, uh, I think, a question has often come up is how is this all going to work out? What are the, the goods and the bads of this entire area of psychedelic chemistry? Basically, the negatives are the terms of many people, from law writers to, to uh, people in the street, feel that this is an area of neurotoxicity, uh, an area these materials cause neurological damage, cause people to lose control, commit crimes, and eventually collapse after 20 years of, of, of uh, brain de decomposition, which is, to a large measure, nonsense. However, I can't say completely excluded. I've been into it for 45 years, and I'm having my usual expected amount of brain deterioration. But I don't think it's that serious yet, so I hope to have another decade or two of, of reasonable responses. And you have the, the increasing urge to put laws against these, these things, because the psychology, the propaganda that they are negative, that they do damage, is very real and very much believed by many people. I've been often asked why use the word psychedelic in itself as a pejorative term. I mean, there are empathogens, entheogens, hallucinogens, psychotomimetics, other terms that are used widely in medicine uh, that carry other messages but do not carry the intrinsic negativeness of the term psychedelic. Well, I, my main argument for keep, continuing to use the term is that people may not approve of what you're working in or what you're saying, but at least they know what you're talking about. <laughs> you stop nine people on Market Street, uh, uh, 10 people, nine people, you say, I work with pathogens." when they ask you what you do, they have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, nine people out of 10, when you tell that you're working with psychedelics, would not, maybe not approve, but at least they know what you're working with. <laughs> so the idea of using a term that is uh, in popular usage, I consider to be quite positive. Well, my clock is still going. The clock is supposed to go flash three minutes from stopping, and the clock has stopped. So I don't know where I am. Uh, let, me, let me wrap things up a little bit. Um, what are the positives? I consider the positives to be the, my main incentive for doing the work I've done for the last half century and continuing to do it now, is I believe in this collection of materials, you're gonna develop tools that are gonna answer many of the questions that have been brought up today Namely, how can you find out how the brain works you can use a rat? How does the mind work? What, is the, how, what kind of a probe can you make to look at the function of the mind? To me, it's going to be a psychedelic material that has very little action in, in, in experimental animals to look into actions in man that are not seen in experimental animals. Namely, the idea of using these materials as eventual research tools, I consider to be extremely extremely valuable. Uh, the, I think what I'll do, uh, a point came up during lunch today, which I, it brought up an interesting story that I think pretty well puts this into perspective about the need of tools 
for exploring research, uh, research tools for exploring this area of understanding the function of the mind. Uh, it was Eric this morning was talking about animals being invested with the properties of, of, of uh, uh, schizophrenia. And this was some years ago, back, back in the good old days before there were many inhibitive, inhibitory uh, actions on human studies, uh, FDA approval, disapproval, get clearance from the DEA clearance, from everything like that before you do any human experiments. Your board of your university has to see the research and approve of it. A lot of this experimental work was done back in the, in the Halcyon days when there were no such things as research approval boards. I mean, in Berkeley, we had the run of the place. We, you know, could fire up the psychotron and make an isotope and use it and try it in... Their argument at Donner Labs, that was a Donner, then it went up, to the, up on the hill in Lawrence Lab, was stay if you want and do whatever you want. The tools are here. Here's a psychotron. Here's your PET scanner. Um, do whatever you want, but just remember, when you leave, turn off the lights and lock the door. And we, we could work through the night there, doing experiments, all kinds of beautiful things. I remember one time, this is kind of, let, so let me use this as sort of a wind-up. Uh, we had the, uh, this was some, maybe three or four decades ago, it's quite popular opinion that, that uh, methionine was involved with schizophrenia because some experiments had been done in which people who were schizophrenic were given methionine-enriched diets and their symptoms became worse, and yet those people who were not diagnosed as schizophrenics with the methionine-rich diet uh, had no changes at all. So we've talked about this pros and cons, and it was a neat experiment. What I did, I, I took a, I remember it's S-adenosine methionine or some compound in that area, and I tucked on a fluorine 18, which makes it a, 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 a positron emitter, which means you can go into a PET scanner and put this into a person and put the head of the person, the person attached to the head, so I mean, no, that didn't sound good. You have the person lie down on a little cot with the head going into a positron camera and you've had a section of the brain just above the earlobes that tells you where that chemical went. Being a positron emitter, it didn't have to have any reaction in the body, it just went where it went. And what we did, this was work done with Tony some, oh God, years, a few decades ago, uh, I made this material, in fact, I made 10 batches over a period of time. The half-life of fluorine is a little less than two hours, so you can't make a lot of it and keep it for a while. And he had good friends up at uh, Mendocino Laboratory, uh, Mendocino Hospital, and he came back with five names of five schizophrenic patients who were up at the hospital. And we had their names and the backgrounds of them. And uh, in Lawrence Lab, I managed to find five normal controls. That was a bit more tricky, but <laughs> we did. And uh, 10 batches of this, and we did 10 experiments. We put the material into the, these 10 people about a week apart, and in each case, put them into the, uh, to the uh, PET scanner. I remember one, one of the uh, schizophrenics, Tony, had a lot of problems with because he did not like radioactivity. And he said radioactivity is bad. So we had down at Donner a great big uh, sort of a background counter. It's a, a, a big room with a big iodine crystal of 30-some-odd inches in diameter, and uh, walls, the three-inch thick lead overhead and the side. And Tony very nicely told him, if you go in here and spend a half an hour, he'll give you a magazine, turn the leave the light on. If you go in here and spend a half an hour in here, your body will be so depleted of radiation that when we take you up in the hill and put you in the positive camera, bring you back to normal. You'll be okay. He believed it. 
Anyway, the, the, uh, a wrap-up was, was the result of the experiment. It was a fascinating thing. We ran 10 studies. And we had 10 photographs of the, of the uh, uh, fluorine-18 disposition in the brain. And the 10 photographs were absolutely different from one another. There was no consistency through this group at all. And so we put them on the wall of the, of the uh, medical radiation thing up in the hill. And across the back of the wall, every time someone would come in from Washington to give a seminar or come in from somewhere of any importance, we say, by the way, here are 10 photographs of the fluorine 18 labeled material we gave. Five of these are schizophrenic patients, and five of them are normals. Which do you think are normals? Which do you think are schizophrenics? And we got absolutely random answers. No, 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 no pattern to be found at all. Then about uh, two months, three months later, one of the schizophrenic patients who liked Tony very much uh, came down to visit and see how everything was going on. Very nice visit. And uh, they were talking for a while. And he saw these, these 10 photographs on the wall. And uh, he said, are those the 10 pictures you took of us? Tony said, yeah. And he looked at one and said, oh, I know, I reckon that's me. And he pointed to number seven or one of them over there. And he's absolutely right. He identified his own photograph from the PET scan of the distribution of that fluorine 18 thing. And Tony very mildly, casually said, oh, you know, you're right, absolutely right, how'd you know? Oh, he said that, you see that little sort of star-shaped uh, shiny thing in the bottom right corner, a little star-shaped thing? Yeah, he said, I see it all the time. <laughs> so, you know, we have a long way to go. <laughs> before we really can understand uh, how the mind works. But this is a start. Thank you very much. Sasha Shugin. Some call him the father of MDMA. But in fact, he is one of the leading researchers in entheogens, in chemicals that change our mood, our brain. Now, what I'm interested in, uh, Sasha, is the roots of this all. I mean... You started working this as a scientist in a laboratory with modern means, but doesn't all this searching for the alternative goes back many, many, many centuries? Well, you have to realize what I'm searching for, which is not for altering consciousness or for having fun or for enjoying this or for discovering that. I'm looking for tools that can be used for studying the mind. And other people then will use the tools in finding out the aspects of the mental process and how it ties to the brain. But my main drive is in as a, a toolmaker, making of tools, and letting other people exploit them. What, but that means you have a fascination with, with how the mind, how the brain works. Complete, completely fascinated. But not the brain, the mind. The brain is now, the, we're in the decade of the brain. Everyone looking at neurotransmitters here and serotonin and dopamine and all these sort of things, which is a marvelous search. And indeed, they're uncovering many peculiarities of neurological connections. But many are being found in animals. And in fact, the animal is the main uh, location for search, for research. And I'm interested in things that affect the mental process, the function of the mind, which is not necessarily to be found in an animal. So the questions I am addressing are how does one affect the attitude towards something, the self-image of something, the feeling of, 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 of religious ecstasy or of fear and paranoia, something you can't see in a rat. Is that true? Do you think that that's the difference between human beings and, and animals? That I, I cannot conceive of how a rat would have a good self-image or a bad self-image. 
I might see how he behaves to a stimulus, or I might retreat from an attack, or I might be lured by some pheromone into some uh, real relationship. But a self-image, uh, the uh, knowledge that he is mortal and he must achieve something or other before his death, uh, the sense that he has a, an ominous uh, apprehension of something that might occur in the future, uh, the memory of an early life experience, uh, earlier incarnation, reincarnation. These are interesting aspects of the human mind, but they're not, that, to my knowledge, knowledge of uh, a part of the rats. In, well, long time ago, there was St. Francis uh, in Italy, and he... I was I like that he went out and preached to the animals and the birds so there must be something <laughs> well maybe uh, he enjoyed that form of uh, interaction I did the birds respond well I don't remember <laughs> <laughs> there is no order of of the, of the birds yet yeah. No, yeah. but there is a saint francis there is a saint francis <laughs> and then he changed things san francisco for one thing um can you can you when you go back to when you were young, what, what, was there something that made you go for the mind? Yes, uh, it was a, an extraordinary experience with mescaline. Oh, gosh, about 40, maybe 40 years ago, I was given in an experimental setting of 350 milligrams of mescaline sulfate. And I knew intellectually what it was and what it did, but I did not know personally what it was and what it did. There were about 10 of us together and about half of us were experimental subjects and half of the people were babysitters. And I went in it with an, rather an open view of what was going to happen and I was totally dumbfounded by what occurred. I suddenly found myself into an extraordinary world, physical world, around me, visual, sensory world of color, of interpretation, of motion, of form, of shape. And I, my first response was to say, how did this drug do this? How did 350 milligrams of a white solid produce this effect? And then I realized the drug had almost nothing to do with it. That drug allowed me to realize, express, to, to appreciate what was there all along. And I was totally blind to it. So what it did, it catalyzed the opening of my own viewing, and that caught my fancy. And from that point on, I've, I've been in research in this world ever since. <laughs> yeah, but go further back, because the fact that you were even willing to do an experiment like that must have had earlier roots. I mean, what's, how was your, your, your parents? Were they obsessed with the mind? Was there a school that said, hey, this is... No, the, um, I think probably immediately prior to this experiment, I had been exploring psycho-this-that changes. I had been reading everything I could upon things that were sedatives, that were narcotics, uh, everything from vasodilators of yohimbine, which might be uh, as, uh, uh, aphrodisiacs, to the psychedelic drugs, and the word psychedelic did not exist, but the drugs that might be involved in changing the point of view or attitude of people, things that might be in uh, with some religious context. I was intellectually preparing myself for this event. Why was I interested at all? That would go back yet younger uh, when I was in my pre-adolescence, pre in which I found myself in a very interesting interaction with some kind of an alter me, an alter ego. Uh, I had uh, a very few, very few, in fact, I had virtually no good friends. A few I had were either aggressive or destructive. Mm -hmm. And so I was more or less a loner. And I got deeply involved in music. I found that good retreat in that. But being in music uh, alienated me with yet other people who were in the physical world and sports and what have you. And so I more or less pursued my own relationships with my own unconscious. Uh, 
and I did not realize at that time that that was a, a potential ally, and I saw it as a as a as a not a particularly friendly component. Could you, if you say that, could it be that you were searching for? the dark depths of your mind because the fact that other people didn't like you, you were a little bit of a loner, that that, that, that made you s- doubt yourself and that these substances and this research gave you an opportunity to look deeper into yourself? Well, I did not know at that time that there was any research or any world like this out there. I had to live totally within myself. I remember uh, the, the pleasures I had in being underneath a, a fence Uh, that was behind the house. I lived in Berkeley at that time in California. And the fence was a honeysuckle fence. And on it were these marvelous little blossoms that you could bite the end off and, and have a very sweet drop of fluid. And I found that was an ally in the sense that here was something that made me feel at home. And yet my neighbor and my parents owned the fence, but the path underneath it went on both sides. And I could, in essence, uh, straddle across both worlds <laughs> in a, and use the... You still do that, I eh? still do that, yeah. But use the honeysuckle as sort of a... as a personal... A uh, palliative retreat, and it was a personal friend of mine, and uh, I established a good relationship with that plant. And maybe that was the beginning of a relationship with plant and plant materials. Just the sweetness and the and the absolute trustworthiness of honeysuckle. But so your med- motivations might not have been to seek the Godhead at first. You were just curious. You wanted to know why you were different and how that worked. I don't think I'm interested in the Godhead now. I don't quite know what it is. I'm interested now in what works upstairs and why it works. Sometimes you have to disrupt something to see how it should work. Sometimes you'll come across something that is disrupted, and these may be tools to reconstruct what has been disrupted for pathological or, or traumatic reasons. I don't know. But you, have, you can go into the direction of, of trying to repair, help, be a therapist, interact with others. This is noble. This is a whole profession unto itself, not mine. What I know in time, there will be a going with tools, with therapeutic tools to the helping of others. And my art's making those tools. And I want to use my energy that way. Now, some people will say that the tools you made, 2CB, and, and you re-brought to the surface uh, MDMA and many, many other uh, substances, backfired. It, it has been used for the wrong reasons. So you, they see you as a bad guy because you... You didn't help the world. You put it into more misery. In what I have no, no, I have no voice in how these things are used. My point is putting them in the medical literature, the scientific literature, and let people use it. Good heavens, people publish how to make gunpowder and isolate uranium isotopes. Mm-hmm. That makes it no less of a of a search how these things are, what they will do, how and and how how to obtain them for whatever use you wish to put them to. Education can be put to a terrible misuse. I've seen it done that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone will ask me, well, aren't there irreversible changes from drug use? There are irreversible changes from an advanced degree in the university. You're never the same person. But you've been equipped with something. How you use it, then you sort of strike a bargain with your own alter ego and perhaps your own unconscious. But to have that information allows you to use it. Not to have it robs you of that possibility. And I've got tools exactly at that point. They're there, they do this, they modify that, they change the viewing towards something. Search it out. Let other people use the tools, and they are far better equipped than I am to use them. I have, I have no experience, nor do I particularly want to use it that way. But I want to make the tools because I that I can do. <laughs> yeah, but you personally, have you felt that it, that it worked, that these things helped at least yourself and the people that you knew good enough to get a another view on reality to to see themselves in a... a They've helped me very much. Uh, 
uh, my my wife uh, very much has a, a good uh, viewing of what she calls the shadow, the aspect of a person uh, who is confronted, will, in fact, will not confront, but has there to confront an inner something, a beast, a, a shadow, a something of the person, the Jungian sense, the unconscious of that, not the subconscious, but wait down there, the beast in the belly. And that is very often looked upon by people as an absolutely frightening uh, enemy. And hence it is suppressed, it's turned away, maybe we can turn to do this, we'll escape, we'll go and work at a living over there, or we'll drink too much over there, or maybe we'll marry as we shouldn't marry, but have children. Escape that, it. Escape, absolutely. Rather than confront that, and to f- confront that is frightening, and to some people it can be very destructive. Take a person who knows that beast is there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, but, but for you, was it destructive for It you? was the most marvelous thing that could happen, because I found it's a damn ally. I could use it or not use it as I chose, and we, we in essence, shook hands. And was that an extra drive for you to go further in the world and, and look for other things because you think it worked for you? This is a use of a tool that worked for me, but it's not the type of tool I'm trying to develop. I'm trying to develop tools that interfere with the more subtle aspects of the intellect because there are many cases where this could be a therapeutic or a constructive or a beneficial approach in areas of mental illness, in areas of, of incomplete cognitive control, in areas of, of, of tumor or traumatic damage, to find alternate routes, alternate routes to, to uh, integrity. Well, there's two models there. One is the, of the disorder model, and the other is the augmentation model. The disorder uh, augmentation... Um, The disorder model is someone is sick, has a problem, has a, a you know, a psychological, even a bodily function that doesn't work, and with your inventions, uh, substances, that might help. Mm-hmm. Bringing back to the baseline. The other thing is to help people to become smarter. Let's, mm-hmm. You know, we, we can talk about smart drugs or, or substances that might give them an advantage in the world. Mm-hmm. Now take people that take a SAT test. I think you call it in yeah. America yeah. all these, these yeah. t- tests. If he takes certain drugs, he might be able to do to make a better result. Is that true? It may well be, but that is not of any interest to my uh, to me. Either the the repairing of what is deficient, or the augmentation of what is adequate, are interesting uses of these. But I'm not. This is not of interest to me. Uh, if something is inadequate, repair might come from a number of the sources. I don't think necessarily the understanding of the of the mechanism of the mental process will lead to automatic repair of damage or augmentation of adequacy. It will allow a tool to be used to explore why it is deficient or explore how it might be augmented. Do, I don't really believe augmentation is that difficult a task. I think that we're we're running at a full 3% of our capability right now. And I think with just a little bit of, of uh, self-discipline or perhaps a little bit of faith, in, in oneself, you could go from three to four percent. That's a big increase, and it doesn't take a drug at all. <laughs> no, you can you can you can eat better food or go take better holidays. Work it. There's many ways, um, but still, there, there's the feeling that that these things we can do to ourselves have an ethical side. If if people who are rich can use them and others cannot, what would happen to the to those who stay behind? How is a rich person can use something that a poor person can't? I don't understand. Well, uh, suppose that there are drugs available or, or medications or, or substances that help you to become smarter. All right. Say there are. Uh, is this in the interest of the people who control the availability of drugs? 
to have people become smarter? Is this really the power structure within our government to have people become more informed voters? Is it uh, in, in the interest of, of politicians to have people more intelligent? Oh, uh -huh. really? I don't think that that's quite real. I think it's the interest of those in power to maintain that power. And one way that power is maintained is to restrict and deny and eventually eliminate drugs that would, con that would constitute competition. Yeah, but then there's always revolutionaries like you, alchemists, who go seek nature, seek, seek science, seek a way first to, to help themselves to, 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 to do the internal alchemical work, but then it goes out in the world, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. True, but I don't believe, other than the satisfaction of getting this information into the public, that I'm a power seeker. Because I find that that is a trap, I've seen it in other people, a trap that allows people to actually begin compromising their own principles very cleanly and very neatly for the sake of accruing power, wealth. It's the same, same thing. Uh, I think that the, the satisfaction is what lives beyond you. And indeed, that's why we have children, that's why we have families, that's why we establish relationships, and that's why some people paint art, some people write poetry, and some people make chemicals. Mm -hmm. It's a way of leaving something that is lasting and may be of value. Otherwise, with your death, you're, you're, you're a, a flame that's gone out, nothing else. Last night I dreamed, and there was this word, the being of time, which you can interpret in many ways, the being of time, of We, we happen to be in Mexico at the, at the moment. The Maya people who lived around here were obsessed by, by, by things like death and time. Were they also obsessed with, with the, the, the substance that we're talking about? They, uh, they have survived in many ways. One of my favorite questions I get asked when I come back from the southern part of Mexico is, where have the Mayans gone? And the question is, you answer it, you just go there and look and they're all about you. They have indeed survived. They have survived most eloquently. I don't know where the Spaniards went, but the Mayans are still here. So in that level, they have, they have achieved, a, 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 at least a, for the moment, immortality. Have they used materials such as this? Of course they have. Because they are all the time searching into themselves for exactly the answer to these things. These are the tools that I have used in some ways as guides as how to design new, new, new materials for research. But uh, rather, you went to look what, say, the, uh, the, 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 the the botanical stuff was out here, and and used it to see what chemicals were active in there. Completely. Here is a plant. This plant can be used for this purpose. The plant can be used for healing. The whole process of healing is a beautiful example. Here you have drugs, chemicals that are healing chemicals. They are in plants. The the ancient knowledge, wisdom of what the plants are is indeed carried from generation to generation. But a little touch. Sometimes the healing plants are used to treat illness, not in the patient, but in the physician. The physician will take the drug, will take the healing thing to be able to interpret what is wrong with the patient and be able to help the patient. A different view that comes only with the awareness that healing is a process, if you are a healer, of interaction. And that But that's so funny because you have studied the chemical interaction, which is very defined. We talk about uh, molecules and their, their active parts and what you call the dirty pictures of the, of the chemist. And now you say, yes, but there is another thing. There's the interaction that the doctor can be the helper, but also he can be the one who takes the burden because that's what they do. Leap ahead to the purpose I'm after where you develop tools that can be used in studying the human mind. The person, it, that will require human-human interaction too. 
and that whether the tool is used in a radioactive sample to go into the brain and go into a positron emission tomography picture to see where it goes doesn't tell you how the mind works. It tells you where the chemical goes in the mind. To understand how the mind works may take the interaction with the subject, the volunteer. It may be the researcher. It may be both. But it may be uh, an exchange of understanding in which these chemicals merely open up doors, catalyze vehicles of expression that would not otherwise be there. These are not going to be doing things. They're going to be allowing things. Just as a plant to the medicine man in the jungle is allowed to see the, the definition of the illness, this is a way in which a researcher or a person who is a companion in a question is allowed to see the approach to mental process. It doesn't do things, it allows things. And that is the heart of this whole area of research. Your next book is... We have a book called Pical, and now there's going to be a book called Tikal, which is about a different class of, of chemicals. It's uh, the area of these mental catalytic uh, so-called psychedelic or psychoactive materials. Pical is for phenethylamines, which is about half of the psychedelic scene. The other book is about tryptamines, which is, in essence, the other side of the coin. It's the rest of the, of the picture. The two members of these two classes probably constitute about 95% of all psychoactive drugs. Now, in the first book, there was a very personal account of your coming to terms with these mm -hmm. things. It was more of an ad adventure on how you invented these things or invented, found them. Is Tikal going to have that personal aspect too? It'll have personal aspect, of, but uh, both Anne and I have covered this question already of how we got started, how we are at peace with this, and how we have formed our own relationship. Now, what have we done with it? Where have we been going with it, and where might we go with it? So that aspect will be kind of a fictionalized autobiography as well. And then the second half of the book, again, will be as in the first book, uh, descriptions of the drugs involved. For the people that really want to know, what I think people really want to know, are you happy? Because you... you what, what's your age now? Uh, 71. You fly around the world, speak at all kinds of conferences, do work, you're still in the laboratory, you've had some problems with the law there, that you, they didn't allow you to do some research, but you're still very active. Mm -hmm. This, this, all this work has done you good? I could not be happier. Thank you, Sasha.